Gift Biz Unwrapped, guest episode number 408. If life gives you lemons, then just make brownies, you silly goose. Attention gifters, bakers, crafters, and makers. Pursuing your dream can be fun. Whether you have an established business or are looking to start one now, you are in the right place. This is Gift Biz Unwrapped, helping you turn your skill into a flourishing business. Join us for an episode packed full of invaluable guidance, resources, and the support you need to grow your gift biz. Here is your host, gift biz gal, Sue Monheit. Hi there, it's Sue. Thanks for joining me here today. And I'm so glad you did because I've got a great show coming your way. As you've already gathered from the title, it's about retail. Not too many years back, this was the obvious way to approach a business if you wanted to sell directly to consumers. Then came the whole web, and along with it, social media, and everything changed. We all naturally gravitated to the bright, new, shiny object everyone was talking about. Retailers saw the web as a threat, and others saw it as an opportunity. I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle because obviously e-commerce has had a huge effect on our lives. But it's not true that it's completely replaced the personal selling experience. Retail is not dead. Instead, a new version of retail has emerged as a combination of the best of both. Even the big guys are dipping their toes into the retail pool as evidenced by Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods and the presence of return desks in Kohl's. At the smaller boutique level, retail is still an option if your heart is set on that. The dream is not lost. Today you'll hear from Jessie, a very successful owner of three shops. She shares how she started Scrappy and took advantage of the growth opportunities that presented themselves. You'll also learn about the behind the scenes things a store owner faces and how e-commerce fits into Jesse's overall plan. If you've ever thought about opening a bakery or a retail store, this one's for you. Today, I cannot wait to introduce you to Jesse Williams, the founder of Edge of Urge, which specializes in the success and discovery of emerging designers. Offering a valuable retail space to other local designers, Her business model has acted as a launch pad for like-minded, risk-taking, passionate designers, creators, and artists since 2002. And that's not all. Jessie is also the founder of Unlikely Professionals. Just like Edge of Urge, Unlikely Professionals is built on the mantra of making something from nothing. This space speaks to anyone who believes in their vision and allows them to stand proud no matter what the profession. Think unisexy general store vibes with apparel, craft beer, and natural wines. Jessie's a mom, designer, and mentor, and she describes herself as a dreamer and tender-hearted. Jessie, welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Thank you so much for having me. There are so many fun, good <laughs> words in that intro. <laughs> I can't wait to go and get under all of that. But before we do, I always like to start in a way that's a little different, and that is to have you describe yourself through a motivational candle. So if you were to create a candle that resonated completely with you, tell us what it would look like with a color or some type of quote or mantra. Okay. So 
I absolutely love candles. We sell so many of them in the store and there's so many different, like the packaging and the presentation and the scent profiles, they're all over the place. I'm just going to tell you a little story so I can get you to where I'm going with my motivational candle. One of my favorite brands that we carry in store, the first shipment that we received, everything, like one of the boxes, like 48 candles came, like all of them were completely shattered. Oh, a train wreck. Like it was just like broken glass everywhere. And I was just thinking like, oh my gosh, these people hand poured all of these candles and they arrived completely shattered. And it, you know, it was like thousands of dollars that were essentially could have been wasted. And I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot throw these away. So they sent replacements. I held on to that box and I ordered some, I usually order testers to burn in the store. And once I burned through one of the first testers, I was like, I'm going back into that box. And I took a hammer and I started like chiseling away the glass on like just one of the 48 broken candles. And I finally got it out and put it in the vessel of the burnt tester that had like black marks. It wasn't a beautiful looking anymore. And I put it in there and I lit it and it was just so rewarding and it, it smelled so good and it was so warm and comforting. So I think if I were a motivational candle, I would be probably one put in a recycled jar or vessel of some sort. And maybe a quote on it would be, if life gives you lemons, then just make brownies, you silly goose. Oh, I was not expecting that. You caught me off guard because I thought you were going to go with the general one, right? The general quote. Yeah. Right. Look and make something different and find joy out of something different, which totally speaks to everything you stand for, obviously. Yeah. I think I saved like almost all 48. There were a few where the wick, like I couldn't get it off the bottom of the glass without like cutting my, my hands. There were so out of all of them, we burned just about every single one of them. And, you know, scent is very nostalgic. You can smell something that'll take you right back to a time and place. So that particular brand, most of them are very warm and earthy scents. That's what I would be. Did you ever go back and tell them what you did with all the damaged product? You know, I didn't, but I probably should. We've worked together now for gosh, a bazillion years. And every now and then, like they've changed their shipping model, thank goodness. And we rarely get a broken one these days. That's good. Just thought of like how many hours they spent making each one. And it's like, I can't waste that. I know. That's heartbreaking. Plus all the time and labor and then all the cost for all the vessels and everything. Oh my gosh. But these things happen, <laughs> right? They do. Mm -hmm. There are always things that come up and we deal with them and we move on. That's right. Okay. Tell me about how you got started and this vision for the stores that you have. I just finished school in Chicago. I went to Art Institute of Chicago and I had picked up knitting again. And I was working in a record store and I had been knitting these little scarves. I used to ride my bike to school and work. It was in Chicago. It was so windy and my scarf would blow off and I was like, this is ridiculous. So I knitted some shorter scarves with buttons and it was perfect because it would stay on and giving them away to friends. And then I started selling them. And then I was like, maybe I could get them into some stores and had my cute little suitcase and walked around and just like kn knowing what I know now, I went about it like the complete wrong way, but no bites because it was everything was handmade. And at the time, you know, most of the places they wanted something that would be uniform and you know, they could sell again and again the same. And then my mom, I was talking to her on the phone one night. She was like, what if you open your own store? And I was like, that is absolutely insane. What do I know about any of that? 
But fast forward, I went to visit her in Wilmington for a weekend. She was like, oh my gosh, I found this little space. Just come and check it out. So I bought a plane ticket and something in me was like, why not? <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm just I'm working at this record store. I finished school. I don't really know what I'm doing. And I just packed up all my stuff, signed the lease and moved into this 400 square foot space that was actually the storage room of this open air market. <laughs> oh, wow. It was very cute. Like I can see through the trash, you know, like <laughs> the floor was like, it was at an angle and I, I learned how to like build a platform and lay tile. I made this cute little store. And when I was leaving Chicago, I asked some of my friends like, Hey, you make these beautiful necklaces or you make these funny cards or you make these hats. Like, can I take some of your stuff? And when I sell it, I'll send you a check. I'll pay you for it. And they're like, some of them said no, but most of them said yes. And so I opened my store with their things and then the things that I knitted through getting open. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love your story so much. So first off, we haven't talked about this, but I'm in Chicago right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm in Highland Park. So I'm like 20 miles up the water from Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> so I totally get what you mean about needing a scarf that buttons and the wind yeah. and all <laughs> of that for sure. <laughs> But you talk about a good example right off the bat here, which is you didn't necessarily know what you're doing and you say you were doing all the wrong things. What do you mean by that? I mean, like now that I know like any business that is like a retail, if they're busy, the buyers are busy. They don't have time for a walk-in or to come in and bring your stuff. I called and made appointments and then they didn't show up. So part of it was like not knowing how the system worked to get a foot in. And then I did get a few appointments and they were like, these are great, but I need them to be manufactured because I need consistency. When it was just, I was going to the wrong places. So now if mm -hmm. I'm a maker, I would look at a store and think of my products as like people. And then I'm like, would these people hang out with those people? Do they look like they would get along? Do they like kind of fit together? Do they look like they would complement each other? Like they would help accentuate each other? If so, then I would reach out there and I would do it through, you know, finding who the buyer was, emailing a line sheet, you know, with contact information. I wouldn't just show up and then like leave samples or, you know, mm -hmm. some people do that. And I'm just like, if you like it, that's great. But if you don't, then you have like this pile of stuff that, if you're like me, I can't throw away something you handmade, even if it's not like the aesthetic for the store. And then there's just certain ways to go yeah. about it. I've learned over the years. But it didn't stop you, right? And I think that's important for people who are listening who feel like they don't know what they're doing. Do it anyway. Like you learn something, garner as much information as you can. That's why this podcast exists. And Jessie's sharing her information with you here. Learn what you can, but don't feel like you have to know everything because you'll never start that. And it's okay if you make mistakes or you learn to do things better. And Jesse, as we continue with your story, I know you're going to show this as an example. It doesn't mean if you do something quote unquote wrong the first time that it's over. You can't do anything. Everybody makes mistakes along the way. So this is a great example. The other thing I was thinking as you were talking, Jesse, is so you were doing this in the early 2000s, right? And this is still when all the brand names, yes, I know brand names are still important today. Nobody come out and tell me differently, but that's all people wanted. They wanted exactly like their friends had. And I feel like now a lot has shifted and the uniqueness and style and having something different than the others is really popular now, overlaid by supporting local and handmade. 
So now is such a great time if someone's looking at starting versus some of the challenges you had when you first started Edge of Urge. Oh, yes, it's definitely shifted. It was before. <laughs> it's kind of like when you hear like stories of like, I walked uphill both ways in snow. It was kind <laughs> of like that. Like it was before Etsy. It was before text messaging, you know, no Instagram. I mean, I didn't have a computer. It was just like my own computer. You know, you had to just go out and figure it out. There's so much more information now, which is super cool. But, you know, through the beginning of the year, there was like a network of us that we just kind of found so we would support each other. Yeah, but now I think people have come to appreciate more of slow fashion or why things, they want to know the story of where things come from and they want to meet the maker. They seem to care again, which is a lovely thing. (laughs) I agree with you. Lots of opportunity. Yeah, for sure. So let's stay back then. When you opened your little store, how did you get the word out and how did you attract your first customers there? I planned it so it would open on 4th of July. And in Wilmington, that's a huge, like, there's tons of people out and about. And I remember I stayed up the night before making things. I was like, I don't have enough stuff for the store. And I was completely delirious that day. But it was really, you know, I didn't have any money for marketing, nor did I even know what that was at the time. So I was just like, I'm just going to be here. And this is when the people are going to come in. And I'm just, they're going to hopefully find me and then want to come back. It was really slow and steady. It was not, like I said, it was completely self-funded. You know, the space was 400 square feet. The rent was $400. All my inventory was essentially free. (laughs) I didn't have a POS system. It was like, let me handwrite this with my little cash box and my little (laughs) the credit card. Remember that? (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) I remember those. (laughs) Oh gosh. Yes, it was pretty low cost. But you were getting sales. It sounds like you were getting sales. Did you get a sale the first day? The first day I made $1,000 <gasps> and I sold one of the dresses that I didn't know how to use the sewing machine then. I was a hand sewed this dress and I sold it for $400. So almost half of it was this one dress. And then I had like, that weekend was pretty good. And then I had like zero, zero, zero. I mean like zero days. Was that then during the week where you open every day? Yeah, I was open every day. Mm-hmm. And it was really slow. And then from there, I was like, I got to get out of this market because this, my brand doesn't really fit in here anymore. Like it was a great place to start, but I'm not going to grow if I stay here. So there was this a space around the corner and I was like, we got to get there. I've got to figure out how to get it. But it was like, I think $1,500 a month, which was a big shift. Mm-hmm. So there was this woman that I knew who was a customer and a friend of the family and she sold jewelry out of her house. And I was like in Greensboro. And I said, I got a proposition for you. What if you put some of your jewelry in a diverge and then like helped me pay for the rent and anything that you sold, I would give it to you. And she did it. And she did it until I was able to get on my feet. It took me like almost a year. And then I was able to, I kept some of her stuff in there, but then I didn't need her help to pay the rent anymore. So it was just really slow. And then from there, I moved around the corner to where we are now. We've been there for 18 years or 17 years in Wilmington. Wow. Amazing. Just like the candle, I think I've come to appreciate it as my biggest assets in the business is the ability to be scrappy or resourceful. I'm not embarrassed to be scrappy because it's really saved my butt quite a few times. (laughs) Got it. You know what I mean? Yep. I got it. So for someone who's looking for a retail space now, what are some things that you would suggest that they be looking 
at? What are the considerations? Because you saw now with three different locations, you were growing, of course, but what are some tips about looking for a retail spot? I would say there's that old saying, location, location, location. Like that is not a lie. Like it is so legit and it is something to hold right in the front of your face when you're looking at locations. Foot traffic, like I guess it depends on what kind of business you are, you know? Like I feel like people will travel a little further and be more experimental if it's food or alcohol, but for like soft goods, like retail, you need to be able to, at least in this area, like parking is something to think about. You know, what is it next to? Are there other people walking around? Like downtown Wilmington is awesome because there's so much foot traffic. Like every day, there's just people there all the time, you know, working or visiting. It's a tourist area. Where we are in Raleigh, like the first three years was oh my gosh, I thought I was going to have to close. I thought that I made like the worst decision ever because it took so long for that neighborhood to like ignite. But like onto the fourth year there, I was like, oh, I can do it. This is great. And now it's great. Was it a developing neighborhood in Raleigh? Is that what was going on? Yeah, that building had been vacant for many, many years. And when I moved in, there was a bakery, a wine shop and a bar. And they had been there long enough to have some of a following, but again, they're all like food and beverage, but then retail, like, you know, people will come over and they're like, Oh, I didn't come over here for that. So I don't really have time for that. I have time to like grab a coffee or time to grab some wine to go home or have at at late when we're closed for the bar. And it just takes time. So I would say if you're in an area that is promising, maybe think about the rent. Is there a way to scale it up until it does take off? instead of starting out with a bank because you need some money to float you until you get there. But also those prime locations, the rent can be so high. You have to also think like just because the location is perfect, if the rent is so high, does that make sense for you? It's a very tricky process and you have to know your risk tolerance. (laughs) So like when I was in the beginning, I almost was completely fearless because I had no idea what I didn't know. But at the same time, I had no money, so I could only do so much, right? But now that I have a family and I have all these employees and people that rely on me to for their paychecks, like that, it's a, more of a risk because I'm not willing to hurt anybody just for me having some like wild idea to do something that makes sense. Yeah, it does. But you also were real creative in the start. First off, like you said, scrappy, you know, getting what you could afford and feel comfortable about because you don't want to be totally stressed out about rent either, you know, especially if you're just starting out. But then your idea of, you know, as you said, you added in your friend who was a jeweler for a short time. That's a great model. You know, if someone is looking and wants to do retail and your community allows for it, set up like a co-op shop, you know, and bring in local makers. And, you know, there are models, I'm sure you know, Jesse, where some of the people who have space from your shop will work a certain number of hours a month at the space, which then allows you to, like you were saying before, meet the maker, you know, things like that. We did that too. You did that too? Okay. So there are ways to build things up. You don't just automatically have to jump from zero to 1500 or gosh, who knows what, you know, some of the prices are of retail. I know in my area, it's crazy expensive. You know, we did consignment for many, many years, which was, I think most consignment deals, the artists get half or even less than half. For us, we did 60% goes to the maker and then we would keep the rest because it was like they were helping us because we didn't have to pay for inventory for the store and they were trusting us with their work. So it ended up being a really 
sweet deal for both parties because we were able to grow our assortment. And then from there, then we were able to buy and have like a really fun mix of inventory. And now a lot of the makers we did consign it with, we just buy straight out from them. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. So slow and steady. (laughs) Slow and steady. I'm getting that trend. Slow and steady. (laughs) But the products that you have are fun, unique, funky, Mm -hmm. interesting, different, all that, right? Oh, yeah. Nailed it. (laughs) Well, and the other thing about offering things that you're either consignment where you're paying for it now as you're talking about or consignment where you're paying the maker if it sells is then you have such a breadth of different types of products in the shop which would attract more people who's in there now like such a variety invokes interest as well so I love that model you know especially for makers and you can test the product too you know so if it's Mm. something wasn't working we wouldn't just say this isn't working take it back You know, it would be like, I think the packaging, maybe we could think about a way we could update the packaging or the pricing on this. You know, if something's selling so fast, I'm like, I think this is priced a little low. I think you could bump up your price a little bit more, something like that, giving them feedback on what the customers are saying. So that is also like um, just lots of information. Yeah. What examples or comments or thoughts do you have on displaying product in retail? You must have seen so much because did everyone get to come in and set up their own little space and then you would maintain it or did you do all the display? I am a maniac. (laughs) (laughs) I really love merchandising. I love putting things together. I enjoy it so much that I do most of that. And then my husband and I both do at Unlikely Professionals. He's also really good at merchandising. We've also talked about one of the dreams that could be so fun is if people hired us to come and we would help them with their stores, like find them fixtures and help them merchandise and teach them how to do it. I think that could be so fun one day. But yeah, I think it's all on how you place it around the store to make it exciting and an adventure for people. So if something doesn't sell, do you rearrange maybe where it is in the store or where it's the combinations that you're putting together and then you see that then it will move just because of that kind of an adjustment? Yeah, I think put it in a spot. Usually if something new comes in, you've got like a few different areas that will put new items. And then if that does really well, maybe that will stay and something will move or yeah, it's very fluid and day by day, but it's really fun. (laughs) I can tell. I saw you light up when we started talking about this topic. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I wish I could just do that part, you know, like buy the stuff, get it in and put it out and then I wouldn't have to do anything else. So it'd be the most fun. There you go. (laughs) Oh gosh. And what do you do with things that don't sell? Like you've tried this, you've re-merchandised, you've like everything. What do you do when there's just a piece that does not sell? Yeah. Well, usually worst case scenario, we have to mark it down. And that's always really a real big bummer. But sometimes it moves and sometimes it's like there's every now and then there's a few things that I'm like, oh my gosh, I couldn't even give this away. (laughs) Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, usually we'll just mark it down. We have a section and we have some customers go straight to the sale when we have it and they're like, yes. (laughs) Yeah, usually we try moving it around. We, you know, make sure that we've hyped it up, something we love and believe in. And if that doesn't work, it's on sale. Is there anything that you can put your finger on of why some things weren't selling? So this year I did a big experiment with apparel because we had a lot of customers saying they wanted, they're saying that they want size inclusivity, like more of it, which is a whole other, like you could talk about that for hours, like the whole apparel industry. (laughs) (laughs) 
but size inclusivity. They want to know where it's from, like things that are more ethically made, all of these things that we all want, right? But there's only a handful of brands that make those. Actually, there's not very many brands that make it in a price that is very affordable, right? It's going to be at least 100 is like you're lucky if you find it for 100. So it's going to be 150 to 350. And that's just a really tough price point for our customer. Yeah. So this year, I feel like I went, they said they wanted it. I went for it. They actually didn't want it. So I do have a lot of that stuff on sale right now. And it's really hard. And that's when, as a business owner, it, it can be challenging because you know your business, you know what your gut says, but you also are doing the business for people. So you want to listen to the people. So I think this year, we're just going to try to find a place that we can land in the middle. But yeah, that was a tough one. That's a really good lesson. And I had a similar situation back in the day too. And the learning for me with that is it's really easy for people to tell you what they want, but like that action has to follow through. Yeah. And I got stuck with thousands of dollars of inventory too, because I heard someone say they wanted like corporations or something wanted something and then they bought like one or two. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, no. I know. I went hard. (laughs) Uh, That's a really good cautionary tale. And yet I kind of cringe because I haven't thought about that situation for a long time, but I've had the same experience. So excellent word of warning for sure. (laughs) Anything else about product not fitting in? Like maybe it just didn't resonate with clientele. It didn't match with other things you had in the store. I don't know what it could be. I'm trying to get you to dig deeper, Jesse. Yeah, (laughs) I guess I feel like It took me a long time to get to this point, but I feel like I know, like I can trust my gut and I know generally what people are going to like. Like this past year, I bombed like super bombed on the clothing because at the price point, like I just failed. And so that's like the first time I've done that in a while. (laughs) It's like pretty bad feeling. But when I first moved to Raleigh and opened the store here, I was like, well, people love Edge of Verge. They want Edge of Verge in Raleigh. So it'll be Edward Wilmington, but in Raleigh. And then I learned that the customers don't like the same kinds of things. So it took me time. It's really just like really paying attention to what people are buying, paying attention to the areas in the store that go thin the quickest, you know, like what are people gravitating towards and knowing they like that more of that. They're not going that way, less of that, you know, and I think of like, you pick your top 10 best, your top 10 worst, and then like get rid of those and try to just kind of keep moving everything up closer to the top. And so in Wilmington, I do some buying for there, but I think it's important to be, for me, in my opinion, (laughs) to be in the store to see what the people are buying. Because you hear those comments, you see people come on, they're like, these pants, like they fit really well. I feel so confident in these. So, oh, great. Okay. So that brand, they have a nice sizing model, right? So we need to stick with that brand or this is a a large, these are so small. And we're like, oh gosh, no, get rid of that brand. Thinking of things like that. And so Shannon, my manager there, I just kind of, I let her just go wild and she's doing an amazing job and she chooses things that I wouldn't choose for Raleigh and they do well there. So it's really learning the customer. Yeah. And through observation, which is what you're demonstrating here. Which I think for some people who aren't at a place where they have retail space, but are out at craft shows, for example, or they sell in farmer's market, observing what people are saying, how they're interacting and how they're commenting is so key, no matter where you are. 
And if you're trying to create an assortment for your own store, your own concept, you really got to think of the things that really resonate deeply with you. And then can you talk about them to your customer? Because that's like the most, like you make a meaningful relationship with the maker and then you translate their story. You take their story and hand it to your customer. And if you are genuinely in love with the product, then if they don't like it, then they don't like it. But chances are, if they're coming into your store, then you have a chance to show them something new. That's a good point because then you're genuinely, authentically, the big word everyone uses now, naturally excited about the product to share it with them versus if you don't really like the product, you're probably neutral, but it doesn't come through with as much energy, I'm guessing. Right. Yeah. Really good point. Okay. Talk to me about something that is less exciting about retail. Like there's always things that people like and don't like, right? So what is something that is not that thrilling for you about retail or is always a challenge? We'll get to Jesse's answer on this question right after a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Yes, it's possible. Increase your sales without adding a single customer. How you ask? By offering personalization with your products. Wrap a cake box with a ribbon saying, happy 30th birthday, Annie. Or add a special message and date to wedding or party favors for an extra meaningful touch. Where else can you get customization with a creatively spelled name or find packaging that includes a saying whose meaning is known to a select two? Not only are customers willing to pay for these special touches, they'll tell their friends and word will spread about your company and products. You can create personalized ribbons and labels in seconds. Make just one or thousands without waiting weeks or having to spend money to order yards and yards. Print words in any language or font. Add logos, images, even photos. Perfect for branding or adding ingredient and flavor labels too. For more information, go to theribbonprintcompany.com. I'd say the most challenging part for me would be the people part because I think it's important to take care and to nurture your team, but also to be able to like delegate and focus on what you're good at. It is challenging because like when you add in new people, you know, most of the time I think you can correct me if this wasn't your experience, Jesse, but you know, you open a shop, you're the one running the shop. You're the one who has to be there all the time during the hours that the shop is open. And then eventually you see that that is not a life. You can't do that all the time. So you have to start bringing in people to help you. And then your job changes, right? Because now you're the leader. You're the educator, if you will, in terms of how you want your team to manage the store and how you want your brand to be represented and all of that. So your whole role changes when you have staff. Yeah, it's hard to find really good people. And then when you do, you want to keep them, right? And so it's like everybody's different. Everybody is motivated by different things. So asking the right questions and making sure that you're responding quick enough to nurture them and to make that relationship and that bond strong. And I think another part for me is that, you know, we're a small team, but we get really close. And sometimes I just want to be the friend. Like I don't want to be the boss. Mm, Yeah. And I just like, I want to be a part of like the inside you hang and like I kind of, but not really. And it's like, it's just hard because I spend so much of my time there and I'm around them more honestly than, you know, my family because I'm with them all day, every day. And it's like, 
that can be kind of hard, you know, like being the boss sucks sometimes, like having to say things that you don't want to say, having to be the one to initiate the tough conversations, having to smile when somebody that you love, like puts in a two weeks notice because they got a job and like something that they're genuinely passionate in, like photography, and then being like, I'm so happy for you, but ah, like those bittersweet moments and you get so attached. I think that's hard. We're seeing your tender-hearted side come out, oh, Jesse. God, it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. I've had to fire only a few people in my 20 years. And it's like, I think it's just hard to do it without, even if they've done everything, they could stab you right in the, the chest. It's like, <laughs> yeah. So I think for me, that's a really hard part. And balancing everything, you know, like the curveballs that you get in the day. Like I have my schedule for the day, but then it's like, Jesse, I need this. Jesse, I need this. Jesse, I need this. And I'm like, but I just need to do this, this, and this. Yeah. You get diverted so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, don't want to leave them hanging. So that's where I wouldn't say that I would be an expert in any way, you know, where there's some things I could do in my sleep. Even after 20 years, some of the people part and the time management things can trip me up from time to time. Well, I'd say you're doing a great job given how long I'm really trying. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, like with anything, there's always something that is not your forte or something that's just harder because it doesn't come naturally to you or you don't like it or whatever. But those serve as good knowledge bases for someone who's considering retail, which is why I wanted to bring it up. Yeah. And I think that's where finding a good manager is really helpful. If you're tenderhearted like me, or if you have a hard time delegating, finding really strong managers who are confident in those areas is important because they can nail it while you're over there crying in the corner. There you go. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's important. And then you can support them. I'd also say, I don't know if you had this experience, but I have in my life <laughs> is, you know, if you have to replace a team member and they end up the new person who comes in, there's a personality conflict or they're mm-hmm. not carrying their weight or whatever it is, can really start to poison the entire team. Oh, yeah. I've had that a few times. That's really hard. Yeah. And you've got to get them out right away. <laughs> yeah. And especially you work so hard to cultivate this culture. And it's really important to keep it strong and nourished and let them know that you appreciate them. Yeah, I don't know what you do, but whenever I'm hiring in somebody new, we do a 90-day trial. So they get to come in and it's two ways, you know. We say, you know, we'll see how everything works out in terms of what's involved in the job and then also whether this is something that you like and enjoy doing. So that way, and it's not an automatic rollover to a job. At 90 days, we stop, we analyze and make a decision. So having that in place right in the beginning before you even know, for me, has been really helpful. And there have been some that we've decided not to continue or bringing in Mm -hmm. holiday help. So it's only for the holidays. Mm -hmm. And then if you really think they're good, then you keep them on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Guess what? I have a spot for you. (laughs) So there's ways to do it easier. I'm glad you brought up the whole people part. That was really good. It's a touchy subject, but it's, it's a real one. Yeah, but you can't grow without having people, you know, work the shop for you. Oh, no, this is not the Jesse show. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) the whole team show. Yeah. So enter in unlikely professionals. Where did that come from? In Raleigh, when we opened, the back half of the space was my sewing studio because I thought, you know, I used to sew above 
the retail space in Wilmington. And I was like, well, let's keep it going here. I had my cutting table. And then I, we would teach workshops like DIY workshops. And then we were like, you know what? Let's make some more retail space on the floor. We got rid of it, started adding menswear. And then it just like, we outgrew the space essentially. <laughs> we're like, oh my God, we're like, if you go into the store, I'm sure people are like, this woman is crazy. She is a maximalist. It's like floor to ceiling inventory. And, you know, so it was like more of like feminine vibes up front, masculine vibes in the back. And it, we were just maxed out. And so we found out that the space across the street was going to come available. And we're like, oh my gosh, this could be perfect. We can move this stuff over there and then do this like bar theme, general store kind of vibes. Like other categories that had been doing really well in the store, we thought maybe we could take them and just like create a sibling, <laughs> a complimentary addition <laughs> to Edgeverge. And that's where Unlikely Professionals was born. They're not right across the street from each other. It's right across the street. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's convenient. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is convenient. <laughs> and so the space is pretty big. It's like 3000 square feet. And so we have like a pretty long nice bar in there with beer and wine and then we have like general store kind of vibes where we have all kinds of specialty foods and gifts and like fun kitchen items and then we have masculine apparel and then we have some of those brands started doing women's apparel so it's very much the same energy and like morals and everything as edge verge but it's just another one of our personalities <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is so exciting just to hear how one thing leads to another leads to another. You take advantage of what comes in front of you, you know, like go into the very beginning of your story where there's a larger space right around the corner. And then where you are now is a bigger space right around the corner. Now you've got the space across the street. <laughs> but when those opportunities came about, like if you didn't take it, someone else would have. So it's a limited time opportunity. Was there anything you felt that you had already prepared besides just thinking you needed to go bigger? Or when the opportunity came up, you're just like, this is perfect. We're going to do it and jump in. That's exactly what we did. It was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, let's do it. Let's just go for it. Let's just go for it. <laughs> Honestly, everything is retractable, right? For the most part. It is. And I think, you know, this is where I remember working years and years ago, thinking of ways that I could expand my business. And I was like, well, I am self-taught at everything. Maybe I should reach out and get some like professional advice. And so I was working with free resources in Wilmington and they were like, you need to do a business plan. That's what you need. And I'm like, a business plan. Okay. And I think I must have gone into a state of paralysis because my brain can't think like that. I just can't, like I have an idea and it's like, I'm the kind of person that's like, I think we should paint the wall yellow and then I paint it and there's one little spot left. And I'm like, after I fill in that last spot, I'm like, hmm, no, I think it should be gray. You know, I have to, <laughs> I have to do it. I can't like just paint like a swatch on the wall and say, that's great. It's like, I have to, I learn by doing, and it's, that's part of the thrill for me. And I wouldn't advise that <laughs> for, for many people, but it's just how I operate. So mm -hmm. when we saw the space, we were like, we have enough stuff of like, you know, for fixtures and random things in our house. We can make it work. Yeah. Just go for it. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure that a lot of the people, your customers who were already coming in, you were telling them about across the street, go there too. And so it was automatic, you know, we're getting out about the other location as well. That's very cool. 
where does your website fit into all of this? When did that get started? Is it significant for you or, or support? Or kind of tell us where that's positioned within your non-existent business plan. <laughs> right. So I think my first website, my uncle made for me. And it was a bazillion years ago, you know, and it was like PayPal. And it had like my swimsuit that I made and scarves. And that was great. And then once I switched over to a real point of sale and needed a real, like a more robust website, it's just like the stores. It was slowly kind of growing and growing. I guess it wasn't until I moved to Raleigh where the website became more like a substantial part of the business. And then when COVID hit, it just took off. And so now my dream was to have the website to be like another location, right? To be its own thing. And it's there now. So it's like we have Wilmington, we have Raleigh, we have Unlikely, and we have the website. And they all pull from our inventory, which can be kind of messy. Like it would be nice to have its own inventory, but we're not quite there yet. But it plays a pretty significant role in the business. Like we have to schedule, we pack and ship from both locate from Wilmington and Raleigh. And it's daily, you know, packages out daily. It's super fun shipping them all over the place. And it's been fun to watch grow. Yeah, you were really fortunate that you already had a website established when the pandemic hit. If we didn't, I don't know what we would have done, but it was almost everything was on the site then. And when that happened, we were like, all right, well, now it's time to put everything online. So we started getting everything online. And then but we have all this inventory. What are we going to do with it? So we started doing mystery boxes right when COVID hit and it would be people could write in and you could do start at 25 and they could go up as high as you wanted. And you would write in something about like you want to get a gift for somebody like say it's for my best friend. She loves cats. She's an aspiring chef. She's really funny. She's very into politics but she hates the color pink and does not like glitter. You could like something as specific as that you could and then we would curate Given that, we would go through and pick items in the store that would reach that amount, gift wrap them, and send them out for them. So you didn't get approval. You didn't go back to her and say, how about this or this or this? It was like, you tell us, and then you trust us. Yeah, and then we did it. And that right there, that is what (laughs) the Edge of Verge survived because of those freaking mystery boxes. And we still do them, and people love them because it's just like the experience in store. You know, people are like, so... For my daughter, she's 16. She loves Harry Styles, but she is wanting to learn more about blah, 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 or something. You know, is really into skincare. You know, we can put something together pretty quickly for him because we have so much variety. And yeah, it's super fun. (laughs) That is so creative. I love that. And especially that it was something that you had to put together relatively quickly that served a need Mm -hmm. because you had all this inventory. But also people still needed gifts and even more than ever now because we weren't getting together at that time. So you really filled a need. Yeah. And then we did some fundraisers where people could buy them for nurses, the hospitals here in Raleigh and in Wilmington. So families were buying gift cards. We were putting them together and would deliver them to the hospitals for all the nurses that were working crazy hours. So it was, it's been a really fun journey to see all of the wild ideas and how some of them stick and some of them (laughs) just bomb, but you just pick yourself up and keep going, you know? It's amazing what you can come up with when you get pushed like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, one final question, because I'm just so curious. So like when you get inventory in, 
you obviously have it assigned to a certain store because you figured that out before you're purchasing, right? But then does it also automatically go on the website? Everything? It does. Everything. Everything. Everything, unless it's something that's like super heavy or just like a pain in the butt to ship. We don't put those online. We try putting in-store pickup, but people are like, I live in Chicago. I'm going to order it. And I'm like, it says in-store pickup Raleigh, you know? So (laughs) we decided like, maybe we should just not put those online. Yeah. So yeah, we put almost everything is on the site now. So someone walks into one of your stores today and buys something. Are your systems behind the scenes set so that that gets pulled automatically from inventory or from your website? So it's all set up so you don't have to worry about that at all. Right. It's just the manual initial input of the product. Exactly. Which means, Jess, you have to take a photo of it, everything. Yes. Yes. Okay. Because a lot of people are challenged. Like a lot of people who are listening right now do one-of-a-kind type products, but they also want to be on Etsy, but they'll have to take a picture of every single one of the things that they make. And here you're an example of someone doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, the photo part is a really tough one because, you know, as a buyer, when I'm shopping or I'm looking at things like it's your first impression, right? So your photography needs to be like right on because you can have a beautiful product, but if the person's not there to see it in real life or to meet you and say, oh my gosh, like you're really funny and you love what you do. Like I'm going to buy it just because I love you, you know, like you're not there. It's your picture has to be everything. And so we do the best we can. And we have some really talented photographers on staff that help. And I don't know, it's just important. But we have one of a kind items that can be, it's a pretty heavy weight, you know, like if you got to figure out what your system is, because it is important to nice images. Yeah, for sure. All right. So if anyone who's listening here wants to see all these beautiful photos and all the products that you have, (laughs) where would you send them? So you can shop 24-7 at edgeofurge.com. And on there, you'll be able to see Unlikely Professionals and Edge of Urge and uh, Renew. So you'll be able to see everything that we offer. Okay, wonderful. Well, I, for one, am going to peek and see what you have there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so curious to see all the one-of-a-kind stuff. And check out that apparel that you've put on sale, too. I, I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you see an order from me, like you can say thank you because I'm helping yes, you yeah. get rid of that stuff. <laughs> thank <laughs> <I don't> you. <laughs> So anyway, Jesse, this has been so interesting. We haven't talked recently about retail. I think a lot of people are feeling like retail's dead. You know, it's too hard to do retail in this environment, et cetera. And you're one who's showing that that's absolutely not true. And it's very clear with the whole conversation how much you really, really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Any final comments about retail or your business? Anything you want to leave our listeners with? What about for somebody who also feels like in their heart, they would really, really enjoy retail? What would you say to somebody like that who's thinking of getting started today, looking for a space just like you did way back when? I'd say that if you are interested, it is a good time because people, I mean, I know people are saying that like online is going to take over the world and like there's not going to be any more brick and mortar stores. But I feel like from what I'm hearing and what I'm personally experiencing is that people really enjoy coming into a space and like the uh, part of the experience. So if you can create something that is fun and interesting and exciting or beautiful and serene, you know, whatever your energy is, if you do it and you do it with all that you have, then 
I think people are really going to enjoy it and come back. You know, it's like that experience. How do they feel when they like the first touch point, like from the outside, how do they feel, you know, when they're inside, how do you treat them? Like, what are they going to leave with? And that feeling is what's going to bring them back. Yeah. And I think even now, more than before the pandemic, people are hungry for interaction and experiences, face-to-face, real live interaction. And we know what it's like not to be able to have that anymore. So it's all the more precious now. And that's what retail brings. Yeah. And you can get the story. You can meet the people. Yeah. It's it's better. You can touch the items and actually take them with you immediately. Yeah. And it (laughs) doesn't show up in a box, like just like with plastic, you know, it's like, (laughs) it's beautiful. You can have it hand wrapped if you want. Yeah. Absolutely. Jesse, thank you so much. I know we took quite a bit of time today, but you had such valuable information. Your experience is so good. I know you've been able to help a lot of the people who are listening today who have this in the back of their mind. I'm for it. (laughs) Maybe we'll figure it out how to take a step forward and be more confident in doing so. Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I admit it, I love shopping online, but there's definitely a part of my heart that can't get away from strolling the local shops of my hometown, and definitely a favorite activity when I'm on vacation. There's nothing like it for joyful browsing and human interaction. And buying, of course. (laughs) As a maker, you have a number of options in the retail arena. You could do consignment, wholesale, be part of an artisan boutique, or start up a shop yourself. I hope hearing Jesse's journey has reignited the spark if this is something you considered but thought the time had passed. It hasn't. Retail is still a thing. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to show support, a rating and review is always fabulous because it helps get the show seen by more makers. It's a great way to pay it forward. And there's another way where you can get something tangible in return for your support, too. Visit my merch shop for a wide variety of inspirational items, like mugs, journals, water bottles, and more featuring logos, images, and quotes to inspire you throughout your day. Makes a great gift, too. And we've just added some new products for the season to the shop. Turnaround is quick, and the quality is top-notch. Nothing but the best for you. (laughs) Take a look at all the options at giftbizunwrapped.com forward slash shop. All proceeds from these purchases helps go to offset the cost of producing the show. And now, be safe and well, and I'll see you again next time on the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. I want to make sure you're familiar with my free Facebook group called Gift Biz Breeze. It's a place where we all gather and are a community to support each other. I've got a really fun post in there that's my favorite of the week, I have to say, where I invite all of you to share what you're doing, to show pictures of your product, to show what you're working on for the week, to get reaction from other people, and just for fun because we all get to see the wonderful products that everybody in the community is making my favorite post every single week, without doubt. Wait, what? Aren't you part of the group already? If not, make sure to jump over to Facebook and search for the group Gift Biz Breeze. Don't delay. Come join us in Gift Biz Breeze. Today, 